0: This week's episode is also sponsored by NatureBox. Go to naturebox.com slash weeds for 50% off your first order. The following podcast contains explicit language. All right. Should we do this? Let's do this. Do this. Okay. Talk about education first and then, uh, then we'll, we'll pivot to some corruption. Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds, Vox's policy podcast on the Panoply Network. Ezra is on vacation in, I, I believe, in Arizona, and Sarah is off reporting someplace in the in the wilds of Kentucky. I saw an Instagram with her um, at what I believe was the Kentucky Fried Chicken Museum, so I, I hope we're going to get some... Uh, some hot uh, KFC takes from a vegetarian when she's back. Um, But for this week, I am joined by my esteemed colleague, uh, Libby Nelson of Vox.com. It's really good to have you here.
1: Hi, Matt. Hi.
0: Um, You've done a couple episodes with Weeds before, so hopefully people will know you. And what I want to just start off by talking about is uh, education, which is uh, where you have a lot of uh, background as a journalist, and which I would say did not play a big role in the 2016 that,
1: campaign. Is, that is like a, a dramatic understatement. There is this game in the education policy journalism community, which is small but vibrant, um, during the debates, during the campaign of like just betting on when he would ever mention education. And I was basically the person saying, shut up. He's never going to mention education. Um, so, yeah, K-12 particularly, I actually can't think of a time. It was mentioned in any significant way. It's possible. He made a school choice speech at some point, but it never came up in a debate. It never came up as like a – Big policy area of contention, and and yet here we are.
0: It wasn't in his rallies. It, we, yeah. we basically had to fire you and shift <laughs> you onto a different beat entirely.
1: This is totally true. Matt is not kidding. I was not fired, but like
0: <laughs> yes, it Literally, was, it was, it was not rough. Fired. I mean, you can see how much Donald Trump talking about K twelve education was not in the campaign because if you think about education in the campaign, it was Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders argued about college.
1: Right. And even, I mean, even Trump's, one of um, President-elect Trump's more interesting ideas was also about higher ed. I mean, it was very much the frame and for for good reasons. I think the last time I was on this podcast was to basically talk about the way in which K-12 had been put to rest um, by the new law that Congress passed about a year ago and Obama signed in January. It really seemed like big debates about the future of K-12 in America were going to be Suspended for the next, you know, four years at least, arguably eight. It just was not a
0: front burner issue. Right. And so we we did not have a big debate about it, as you predicted. Um, But I read on the Internet website, Vox.com, recently that Donald Trump actually has an ambitious K-12 education proposal that he has – I guess never discussed, um, <laughs> he, but you found it somewhere.
1: He did. OK, so I'm, I'm overstating a he, little he bit. He made spe- one speech about this on the campaign trail. I don't believe, although I I was so sort of not on the education beat that I am not sure that I checked. I don't believe there were many details at the time. But there is on his campaign website, which now after he has won, actually looks like a normal campaign website with uh, all of the policy areas rather than building the wall and like two others. Um, There is a a section on K-12 and he essentially has a plan to convert the entire system of funding for poor kids in schools into a voucher system, um, which is a pretty standard Republican idea and then has this weird multiplier effect proposal that would actually create a very robust system of school vouchers at the federal level for the first
0: time. Okay, so let's let's back this back this up uh, a little bit. So the the federal government is not. Like the primary actor in in K twelve education, um, but it has this pretty significant funding stream that that you you reference that that is supposed to finance. Education in districts that have a lot of low-income children—is yeah, that how it works?
1: It's, yeah, it's called the Title One program. Um, there's, it's about fourteen billion a year, which is a drop in the bucket in terms of how much people, uh, how much is spent on education nationally. But it is a, it is the most significant federal presence. And the idea is, they're grants that are meant to go pr- primarily to schools with a pretty high concentration of disadvantaged kids, um, measured by getting who qualifies for free or uh, cheaper school lunch.
0: And under current policy, I mean, what? do you do with that money as a as a sort of high poverty school
1: you can so, you can use it on professional development you can use it on additional resources there actually are some studies that suggest it doesn't make a huge amount of difference either way um, but it is meant to go to the school and it's meant to be a resource to sort of help with this challenge of educating a concentrated population of of disadvantaged
0: yeah kids. i mean i think in dc i think like in the school where where i'm zoned into mm-hmm. they use the money to do preschool offerings that don't exist in the wealthier.
1: Yeah, they can do that. They could do um, sort of remedial tutoring type stuff. They can hire people to, to train teachers. There's a lot that they can do with it. But it's also a pretty I mean, it's a big program. When I say it's, you know, concentrate schools with concentrated poverty. Um, about half of all American school kids get free or reduced price student lunch. And I think the threshold for Title I is somewhere it's below half. Is you have to have below half of your student body meeting that. So that's a right. lot of schools that we're so the, talking about.
0: So part of that is right. So the public school population mm-hmm. is considerably poorer than the national.
1: Average. Right. And right. Point, yeah, and the, the threshold for, for reduced and free lunches is, is higher than the threshold for poverty is another thing I should mention. It's about 200
0: percent of the right. poverty okay. line. Okay. So a lot of schools are getting this money. Mm-hmm. And the idea of the money as it currently stands is like you have your core school and now you have a little bit of extra money that you can use in a lot of different ways. Right. It, it the, adds up
1: to like $500 per kid, $550 per the, kid.
0: With the goal of- somehow helping and trump wants to take that money and do what would he,
1: he do? wants to turn it into a voucher which means basically in this context that instead of a school with that hits that threshold getting more of this money every poor kid uh would come with sort of a small federal bounty of like 500 and 550 dollars or whatever it is that would go to whatever school they're attending um regardless of whether that's a public school a private school or a charter school and this is, by the way, I should say this is a really, really standard uh, Republican right. policy proposal. It's called Title I portability if you want to sound smart around education policy people.
0: So in, in a practical sense, that might make not that much difference conceivably, right? I mean, yeah. if, if kids might just stay in the schools that they were in and the schools would still get the $500. But – in places well so like dc has a big charter school yeah sector and so that would mean that money would tend to flow out of the neighborhood schools and into the charter school
1: yeah the other place where it would make a big difference is at schools like uh the schools that i went to which were not schools with a lot of concentrated poverty but because there were layoffs and small apartment complexes and things there were a, you know a small handful of kids who got free or reduced student lunch and that's they, at the time, the school really did not get any money for them. This would mean that those suburban schools, wealthier schools, would end up with at least a little slice of that pie. OK.
0: So so low-poverty schools would get more federal money. Right. High-poverty schools would get less federal money.
1: Right. The Tra- idea is kids should be able to transfer within a district and so the money would follow them. And that's where the sort of the voucher idea comes in. But – A lot – when you think about the fact that a lot of the inequality is between districts rather than within them, um, that's sort of where this runs into a bit of a wall in terms of making a concrete difference for for kids' education.
0: Right, right, right. Okay. So that's $14 billion. It's a change that – I mean I I don't want to dismiss it. Obviously, some schools would lose a lot of money Mm -hmm. under this and and there would be no requirement, right? So like a school in a rich area would get a little bit more money because it has some Mm -hmm. low-income kids in it. But there would be no requirement to like spend that money on specifically helping those kids, as opposed to just yeah. Like I don't, I don't believe so. Yeah,
1: I don't believe so. I'm trying to think if that was in. This has come up legislatively a lot, and I don't think there was a requirement in the latest right. sort of iteration of that.
0: And the rewrite of No Child Left Behind that happened last year, part of it was like softening the requirements on schools to right. to meet performance standards for. Mm-hmm. Sort of underperforming groups, right? So, right. And I is, should
1: say, this came up. This came up as an amendment. It was. Right. It's one of those amendments that is hardcore beloved by a, a pretty large segment of of Republicans in Congress. But practically, Obama was never going to sign that into law, and so it, it dropped off um, during the during the debate on the bill.
0: But so that means this is something that seems like it has a, a high likelihood of happening. in a Republican Congress, Republican administration. That it. The reason it didn't happen in the last bill is that. They wanted to get a deal done.
1: Yes. I would I mean I, I am hesitant to predict anything, but I would say it's fair to say there's strong support among Republicans in both the House and the Senate, including the chairman of the the Senate Education Committee on this idea. Right. So it's it's certainly not outside the realm of possibility. It is certainly more of a hardcore Republican-based thing than a everybody thing. So it's possible it would run into something in the Senate that I'm not thinking about. But like it's yeah. It's it's certainly not a crazy idea in terms of whether or not it's likely to happen.
0: Right. So it's they've been pushing it. Yeah. And it's been just sort of Th- this not. This goes back
1: to Reagan. This right. is not. This is not new.
0: Um. Okay. But there's a there's like a bigger element.
1: Yeah. So this is where Trump's plan gets really um, interesting. Weird. However you sort of want to want to look at it because the fact is a five hundred and fifty dollar voucher. If you're looking at wanting to really do to either send kids out of the public school system or in the, the words of, of supporters of this plan would be to really give them a meaningful choice. A $550 voucher is not going to give you much of a meaningful choice if you're looking at the cost of private school tuition. Right. Um, and so what Trump wants to do is to somehow sort of turn Title I, uh, this funding for poor kids, plus an extra $6 billion from sources, TBD, right. probably special education, um, into a sort of big... Grant program for states and then award that grant in a way that incentivizes getting states to kick in a pretty significant amount of their own money to turn this into a voucher that would magically give students like between um uh, I think it's ten to twelve thousand okay. um, dollars which is really that like that's a meaningful amount of money
0: so so the idea here is this would create a states that have like a lot of Republicans. In elective office mm-hmm. who may be inclined toward, hey, maybe we should do a giant voucher program but are maybe like worried about the practicalities of that, blah, blah, blah. It would become much more of a sort of a downhill yes. slope. If you, if you were predisposed to think voucherizing the public school system was a good idea, now the federal government would be really financially incentivizing yes. you to do that. Whereas under the current system— you're, it's a little bit challenged.
1: Yeah, you're you're pretty much on your own. Um you can you certainly can. There are states that have statewide voucher programs, and we can talk about the evidence from those. Um but if you are a Republican-controlled state, somewhat inclined that way, this is the optimistic or the the sort of optimistic version for Republicans in Congress who I don't think who would have some issue, I would think, with sort of the federal government saying, and now all states, you must also do this, is that it would provide cover. Um, the way Trump has phrased it, it sounds like it's something more than that. It sounds like it's actually incentivizing mm-hmm. vouchers in some way. The other thing that that sort of gets you to a larger amount per kid is this is only for children in poverty, which is about 11 million kids. Um, And that's a much smaller number than the number of kids who are considered quote unquote poor Mm -hmm. for Title I purposes. So this is leaving out a big chunk of like poor, but not quite that poor.
0: So, like like the the very poor. The very, yeah, very, very poor. So we should step back and and try to understand how this goes. Like something where I have frequently been a little uncertain is like, what is a voucher program versus? Charter schools and and other things that are that are in the so we know like a traditional public school the idea is like you have a house somewhere mm-hmm. you go to a map right the map says okay the kids who live here go to this school and then like there you go right. right and maybe there's some provision that you could apply to the school in another neighborhood and that's like public schools right as we know it
1: yeah and this is uh, this is actually pretty important if you're talking about the context of education reform because there's this sort of broader movement called school choice and that is just sort of the idea that you should have any kind of choice that is not just the school you're zoned into and that sort of splits off um politically like so the first the first level is 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 charter schools which are privately run independently run um sometimes by a by a for-profit company usually not and publicly funded and so those have Some of the characteristics of a private school in terms of being more independent, uh, not necessarily having to have unionized teachers, not having to abide by the collective bargaining agreements, doing things like a longer school day, um, having themes, but are still sort of – I mean charter charter supporters will adamantly tell you that that charter schools are public schools um, and so are sort of part of the idea of public schools as a whole. Vouchers are a whole step beyond that, which Mm -hmm. is essentially you get – honestly, the best way to think about vouchers is to think about how college financing works in America. Mm -hmm. If you are poor and you qualify for a Pell Grant, you get that amount amount of money. You can go to any college you choose. The federal government will send that money to that college. It will pay your tuition. And that's essentially how vouchers work. You have X amount of money from the state and or local and or private, in some cases, a privately funded voucher program. Um, you can go to any school that will take them which is not necessarily every public school or every private school that exists around you and that money will will flow to that school
0: but i i, I still find this distinction between the vouchers and and the charter schools a little bit puzzling mm-hmm. right so like in in dc we we have a lot of charter schools right, right? they're around you can send your kid to them um those schools get money mm-hmm. from the I don't know like the city's education department right. right proportionate to the amount of kids who are enrolled in them right but also those schools they're run independently and they have at least some of them have like extrinsic financial support too mm-hmm. right so like so like the the kip in Shaw where where we live it gets money from the city when kids enroll there but also they're like a big well-known national Charter school brand that, like, (laughs) rich people who like them give money to. They have some separate board. So, like, how how is that different from there's a private school called KIPP that has some donors and also collects money from the students who come there?
1: Yeah, I mean, the big difference is religion. Um, the vast majority of private schools in the US are not secular. Okay. Um and whilst chartered, I mean, some charter schools are like affiliated in some ways with religious groups. There's this weird controversy about Turkish ones. It doesn't really matter. Okay. Um private schools, like private school vouchers, in effect, the the effect it has is a massive transfer of funds um from sort of non-secular non uh, affiliated secular institutions to mostly Catholic. Uh, religiously affiliated institutions. That's the big one. The other one is that while charter schools can do some things, I'm going to have to be really careful here as far as selecting the students that they have. In some cases, private schools can do a whole lot
0: more. Okay, so okay, so so I think that this is important. So so to qualify as a charter school mm-hmm. in most charter systems, there's like two things you have to do that a private school doesn't have to do. One is that like for First Amendment reasons. You can't have like crucifixes up in the classroom, right. you can't have like organized prayer activities right things like that i mean yeah you a can, church
1: a church could in theory open a charter school but would have to function as a yeah i mean like, you, it would have to function like a non affiliated school i
0: mean this the same stuff that like has bugged religious people about. Public school, right, exactly. right? Like yeah. you, you can't you can't have like a Bible study right. as like a thing, or or right. So so that's one, and then the other is that the admissions has to be open in some sense. You have lotteries when they're oversubscribed, mm-hmm. or you have I think in some places you can have like neighborhood preference systems, but you can't say. You have to take a test.
1: Yeah, there there are ways like you can. In some, there have been cases where there are parental involvement requirements. I mean, there are uh-huh. some things they can do to sort of nudge admissions toward getting kids who are more qualified. But that is a world of difference from like we will look at your grades and your behavior record, and we will just arbitrarily decide as an admissions committee whether or not to let. you –
0: And this go. is like an allegation, right? So like in yeah. New York, yeah. it is frequently alleged right. as if scandalous charge that Eva Moskowitz's Charter schools are implicitly screening out underperforming, misbehaving kids. Yes. Whereas, if you were to say that about the city's parochial schools, they would just be like, "Yes, that is what yeah. we do." And that's right? and that's
1: one of the reasons parents like us is that, like we're right. allowed to do that. Yeah. So,
0: so with charter schools, it's like a controversy. Yes. Are they huge are they secretly on mm-hmm. the sly getting rid of the? Trouble kids,
1: right? Or We're, yeah, or encouraging the veterans to attend. It's a, it's like a you're not supposed. It's not the ideal of what a charter school right. is. I think is the fairest. Way
0: to whereas say it. in the parochial school system, that's like a feature, right? Right, like that's yeah. like one of the main reasons parents would say they would say like, yeah, no, we wanted them to go to this school where there's stricter discipline, where they're not dealing with whatever right problem cases. Right. Um, so you would sort of push aside this whole realm of controversies about, like, are the charter schools really just working by, by uh, what do they call it, it's cream skimming?
1: Yeah, cream skimming, yeah.
0: And we would just, like, embrace that.
1: Right. And that's why, I mean, there's a, that's why the, the quote-unquote school choice movement, there's a really big divide between, like, charters-only Democrats, um, who include Duncan, uh, Arnie Duncan, Obama's former education secretary, President Obama himself, um, and Republicans who are much more concerned about, they may support charter schools and most of them do. But are much more concerned about sort of broadening this universe to include all of these private schools uh, right. that are that – are, that is really a bridge too far for, for virtually all Democrats.
0: If you're anything like me, you know, sometimes you want a snack. And if what's around to snack on is junk food, you're going to eat junk food. And it's it's not great. Um, so if you want to sort of live a healthier life, you can start snacking healthier with NatureBox. Uh, they make snacks that actually taste great and they're better for you. They're created with high quality ingredients that are free from artificial colors, flavors or sweeteners. So you can feel OK about snacking. Uh, I, I like some of their dried fruit stuff. They got great apples. They got great pears. Um, they also have some, you know, slightly more indulgent pretzell-y things in there that, that I also uh, I also go for. And they've recently made their service even better. You can order as much as you want, as often as you want, with no minimum purchase required, and you can cancel it at any time. Uh, so it's really simple. You go to naturebox.com, you check out their snack catalog. There's over 100 snacks to choose from. They're always adding new stuff. So you choose what you want. They deliver it right to your door. It's easy. With Naturebox, you'll never get bored. There's new stuff there each month. It's inspired by real customer feedback. And if for some reason something comes, you don't like it, they will replace it for free. That's a good opportunity to Try out something new. Um, so right now you'll save even more because NatureBox is offering our fans fifty percent off your first order. If you go to naturebox.com/weeds, so you go to naturebox.com/weeds. Uh, that way we get credit, you get fifty percent off your first order. naturebox.com/weeds. Democratic education reformers, whether you believe them or not, what they say they are doing is trying to help the the worst cases right like Mm -hmm. the the most like hard luck sort of scenarios are supposed to be being boosted by this reform agenda whereas the give everybody money to go to the local catholic school agenda has like a like a different target audience really it seems the really
1: interesting thing about school vouchers is that there are like Three different target audiences. Mm-hmm. At least two. I think. I think there are three, and I'm going to forget the third. But um, it's it's a it's an idea that you can describe in very different terms depending on who you're trying to appeal to. Yeah. So one part of it is this um, social justicey reformy language, which is pretty much identical to what Arnie Duncan would say about charter schools, right. which is if you're rich or well well off, um, you have the opportunity to buy a house in a good school district. Right. That is exercising school choice. Vouchers give poor families who are stuck with whatever they can afford the opportunity to exercise some kind of meaningful choice over their kids' education. Um, Accompanying that, there is this sort of debate about whether they are best for African-American kids in cities in particular uh, that we can talk about when we talk about evidence. The other half of it is a much more um, libertarian argument that is much less about the sort of moral imperative of letting certain families who don't have a choice have a choice and much more about this idea that vouchers will force all schools to compete. Uh, everyone will be better off for having choices. Let's open the marketplace. And it's much less about improving education for a specific sector of kids and is more about just like public schools shouldn't have a monopoly. Right. Um, and then the third – okay, there is a third. And then the third is sort of a – this is a much more coded appeal – But evangelicals love school vouchers. Um, They mostly go to Catholic schools just in terms of where the private schools are in Mm -hmm. America. But the group that is really 100 percent huge on them is the religious right. And that's part of sort of a a withdrawing from the public schools and a a casting of the public schools as a malign force in America that goes back to sort of the very early days of the voucher movement in the
0: 1970s. Right. So so, I mean from their perspective, right, so it's – I mean the the Catholic church likes the idea of – creating more funding for their parochial school system. And and, and so do many
1: Catholics, I should say. But. But,
0: But they also already have a big parochial school system. But evangelicals would sort of like to get off the ground Right. Yeah. Like or it, it, is,
1: it is off the ground, but it's sort of this idea uh, that you don't really see when you're talking about Catholic schools, right. that evangelicals, particularly in the 70s, 80s and 90s, had like very specific things they objected to right. about the public schools. They objected to the Supreme Court decisions on school prayer. They objected to school integration. And that was a, a right. huge founding factor of the religious right. And there was this idea that my tax dollars are supporting a system that doesn't include me. Right. They went out. There was a huge boom in, in sort of evangelical K-12 school creation, right. which just kind of didn't exist before that. But... It, it doesn't have the kind of, you know, established infrastructure that parish right. parochial schools do. And there's this idea that it's like morally objectionable for them not to be able to send tax dollars to the
0: schools that they support. Right. But so what, one difference here, because when we were talking about the Trump proposal, mm-hmm. it was this question of like the scope, right? right? So if you have a voucher system for kids living below the poverty line, that is not going to achieve group three's goal of establishing whereas if you had like full scale right if you just said okay instead of running an elaborate public school system Mm -hmm. we're going to give we're going to take up how much money we spend on public education we're going to take our kids do division Mm -hmm. and hand everybody a check then you would have like middle class white evangelical suburbanites going to maybe just like church-affiliated schools yeah. that, you know, don't teach evolution, that do proper Bible moral instruction. But it, like like that's like – that's a dream but it requires a much bigger policy than even this pretty big Trump policy.
1: Yeah, and a much bigger policy than it really exists anywhere except um, Nevada is sort of taking little steps toward it through education savings accounts, Okay, um, which is sort of a – different. It's it's very separate from Trump's proposal. I think it's it's fair to say like that idea that includes like middle class suburban non-poor non-disabled right. kids. There is not a voucher program right now that is doing that. Right. They're all like even the biggest statewide ones which are in Ohio and Louisiana and a couple um Wisconsin, those have some kind of income right.
0: threshold. So I mean it's it's important to understand that though because it's like one of There's different political impetuses for this, right? And one is like a very intellectual, like Milton Friedman kind of filtering down, like in principle, this is a better way to organize public services. So – but change is hard. So we want to start with the neediest cases Mm -hmm. and – whatever we we think there will be empirically validated results that show this quote unquote works right. and that will like build support which is different from like if there's not really like an evidence-based argument about whether or not sending kids to schools that do proper evangelical moral education works or not? I mean, obviously it works, right? I mean, if if what you want is for your kids to go to a school where they will receive Bible-based religious instruction, then sending them to a school where they receive that is going to work and sending them to a traditional public school is not going to work. Right. right? Yeah,
1: that's sort of an interesting thing in the looking at the voucher argument as a whole because there is evidence on whether or not it works, which is is middling. But there also is like for almost everybody who has an opinion about school vouchers, Whether or not they work is sort of beside the point. It's, you know, is it a – do you think it is, like, morally objectionable? The the really big flashpoints are not, like – unlike the charter school movement because, like, most liberals in the education reform business see themselves as – or in the education reform – you know, world, see themselves as motivated by, like, empirical evidence, actual improvement, you know, making making. Well, and a to be clear,
0: I, I mean, like, like, academic performance improvement. Yes. Right? Yes. I, mean, I, I mean, that's just the point that, like, the evangelical objection to the public school system dating mm-hmm. back to the 70s was not about right. test scores. Right. So, I mean, I wouldn't say it's that they don't care if it works, but <laughs> that, like, what they think is not working mm-hmm. is not... Like that the Tim's score is too low.
1: Right. It's, it's like what you find a persuasive argument. It's like, right. you know, there is this sort of undercurrent in most of most of the charter school debate that like if charter schools aren't delivering a better education than traditional public schools, we shouldn't do them. Right. There is a version of that argument about school vouchers, but it's not the primary argument about school
0: vouchers. Right. right. You, OK. So let's talk about evidence. Though, yeah. Because when evidence. I was a, a wee lad um, and I got uh, my, my one of my very first. Assignments to write a story. I was supposed to write about some studies on a Milwaukee uh, voucher program. This was thirteen years ago, so the study would be fifteen years. I've old read or it. Something. I can
1: guarantee you, I've read it. Um, I so, just read them all.
0: So, so I wrote this up and I said, "Well, these studies show that the kids who get the vouchers do about as well as the kids who don't get the vouchers, which is to say, not that well because mm-hmm. the Milwaukee schools are garbage." um but the parents say they're happier and so um that seems like a reasonable trade-off <laughs> to me um then i was shock to learn then people it, came for
1: your head that, no no
0: no not people just just editors they're like actually the point of this assignment was to say that we had run this big test on the milwaukee school voucher <laughs> program and mm-hmm. we'd prove that it doesn't work so i mean i ch- i changed the story um the editors man the, the study does say that right i mean yeah. this goes back to to your other thing right it, Again, this was old. I'm sure there have been more studies and there's more evidence. But these studies of the Milwaukee voucher program circa 2003 did show that if by work you mean the kids who get the vouchers did better on standardized tests mm-hmm. than the kids who didn't, it did not work. Now, if by work you mean the people who had the vouchers, like them mm-hmm. uh it seemed to be working great um and they said that they yeah you know, i mean they were yeah. they were sending their kids mostly to catholic schools in milwaukee uh the catholic schools made them wear uniforms uh they kicked kids out who were misbehaving and the parents who were in those schools thought that that was good and if you think for like a minute about like like what like, why does communism not work? And, like, why is capitalism good? Um, the thing that, like, free markets are amazing at is, like, they give people things that they want. So it's like if you want orange pants, you can get orange pants. If you want to send your kid to a school where a nun will yell at them, <laughs> you can send your kid to a school where a nun will yell at them. And the, and, and the, yeah. and the customers did come away happier with that. Um, yeah. But the kids were not actually doing better in school.
1: Yeah, And honestly, like, that's that's sort of— not far away from sort of the big debate here. There have been about 20 or 25 studies like that on voucher programs in six, I think six cities in two states, but it might be four cities in two states. It's not all that many places. It's not that many places is one thing. So we're sort of studying these same programs over and over and over again and like teasing out the results. Um, About half of the studies that like the pro-voucher Friedman Foundation cites in its like glowing evidence review of good, research finds vouchers work, actually did not really find that vouchers worked, Uh if you were talking about worked in that narrow academic improvement sense. The rest of them found they worked a little bit. They worked for one group, usually African-American students, but not really for anybody else. Uh, They worked in the sense that graduation rates were higher, which does not really shock me if you think about the difference between a, a public school and a private school. Um, but they did not work in the sense that kids enrolled in college more. I mean, it's it's really pretty mixed, which is not atypical for anything education that's pretty widespread. Um, and so then you sort of come down to like, well, for the most part, it didn't seem to make things worse. The really interesting thing is there have been more recent studies on statewide voucher programs in Ohio and Louisiana they have found multiple times that they did make things worse for the kids who got them. Right. And an education that, by the way, is like a pretty shocking finding, like it didn't make that much of a difference is a pretty common conclusion, which is uh-huh. why – like even nationally, charter schools versus public schools, it's like the average charter school and the average public school are not necessarily all that different. Seeing a big positive change is is pretty unusual, and that's why those studies are talked about a lot. Seeing a big negative change is insane.
0: Right. Um, and But – But I mean, to to look at the at the charter evidence, too, I mean, one of the things, at least it seems to me, we see in the charter evidence is that the smaller charter programs tend to be the ones that have the best results. Mm -hmm. Right. So it's like you get a lot of like dueling takes where it'll be like, oh, in Boston, they have this like really strict cap, but the charter schools are really amazing. So it's such a bummer. We should really raise the cap. And then the critics will be like, in Arizona, they're just like. Opening up charter schools on every street corner, and they're garbage, right. And the vouchers seem to show something somewhat similar to that, right? That it's the biggest programs yes. are the ones that look worst,
1: yes. um, and Wisconsin was sort of has an asterisk on it because the full evidence from that it was like dramatically expanded a couple of years ago, right. and evidence for that so not we got to, to come but in. but it was but Louisiana, Louisiana and Ohio are both fairly recent statewide programs in both cases, kids who got vouchers. Uh, ended up doing worse in a significant way later the next year and I believe the following year on state tests than kids who got the vouchers but chose to stay in
0: public schools. And, I mean, Louisiana public schools are not like the prize pig of – the global education system, either. Right?
1: Yeah, I mean, this is that's. It's really. It's a pretty disturbing finding. I mean, there were there were some pro voucher. One of the studies was written up by a generally pro voucher group, or was conducted by a pretty pro voucher group, and they just said, "Look, like this is really dismaying. We didn't expect this. This is this is an alarming result." So what, like, what what happened there?
0: Like, what what is.
1: Because, I mean, yeah, there's a couple theories in Louisiana. One is like you don't all have not every private school has to take vouchers like the, the like platonic ideal of a voucher program is the one in D.C. is trotted out about the one in D.C., which is like one or two D.C. kids gets the D.C. voucher and goes to school with Sasha and Malia Obama at Sidwell Friends. Right. There is like one kid every year who does that. Right. But most, you know, private schools don't have to take them. The private schools that do take them, the theory in Louisiana was, were like Catholic schools that were struggling and wanted this federal or the state money to, you know, go to them, um, which is not like a great incentive for schools to be providing the best of possible educations. So the idea was basically like the poor, the worst private schools took them, the better private schools didn't. Kids like moved from their bad public schools into bad private schools. And so you had the the negative effects of changing schools and then you went to a school that wasn't better and might have been worse.
0: And so, I mean, to an extent, it it seems to me we've just had this big, over the past 15 years, sort of experiment in higher education. Right. With the theory, if we make money available to people, they're like, we know that a college degree is valuable. So what we need to do is make money available for marginal students to attend the school, quote unquote, of their choice, mm-hmm. and then things will be good. And what we found much more clearly in Southern Louisiana, that like the crown jewels of American higher education system don't want to enrol the marginal student right. who you were trying to help. And they wind up going to places that are very different. I mean, both in their program, but also in their like mentality from like what you what like comes to mind when you think of like little right. Johnny heading off to college. Right.
1: I, and I think I think I can make this concrete because this is one thing I I do know a lot about. I've spent eight years with reporting on Pell Grants um, with the Pell Grant program, which is like vast majority kids from families and adults from families making under $35,000 a year. Almost everyone from under $50,000 a year. The. Top-tier private research universities and, like, really great public universities are enrolling a tiny share of their student Right.
0: Body. So, like, you could like, take like, your Pell Grant to Stanford, right. like, but you won't.
1: And, like, 20% of your student body being Pell Grant students is considered this, like, huge achievement for a private university. On the other hand, um, the for-profit schools that proliferated in the 90s and, and early 2000s, there is a rule that they can't get more than 90% of their income from federal grants and loans, um, mostly loans because federal grants don't cover all that much. But, like, that is the degree to which they are really, really dependent on the student aid system. And so you, some kids get into the really great schools, and then there's this other sector that exists by default because of the existence of the aid. And, like, that's with more quality controls than are mostly talked about in uh, K-12 voucher systems.
0: Right. And it's a business, right? And, like, in business, when the opportunity exists to just, like, roll in slightly desperate customers, what you want to do is do really good marketing, right? right? I mean, like, that's how you sell Fritos. That's how you sell, like, everything, right? right? Like, a product in a marketplace is not – Based necessarily on like its adherence to like an academic, you know, yeah, to yeah. to to a certain kind of quality standard, right. right? Like, no, nobody thinks. Well, if we just let everyone buy whatever food they want, right. then everyone will eat healthy stuff all the time, right? right? Like, that's stupid. Like, right.
1: we, I, we, we, and we, and you buy food. I mean, the thing is, all colleges do advertising for big top tier schools. It's football, um, right. but like you buy Cheetos, like you know all the time in your life. The problem with education is if you're taken in, like, that's your one shot. Like, right. you don't get to be like, oh, well, that that, that college experience is awful. Next time I'm going to do it better. Like, sure. you, do, you don't get a next time. Literally on Pell Grants, there is no next time you run out of eligibility. Right. Um, and so that's really like when you talk about education as a marketplace, there are the sort of two big problems. One is you don't get to do it over. The other is that, especially with college, but I think you can sort of translate this down to the K-12 level, too. Like, you don't see the results. You don't understand if what you got was great or not for years. Right. Um. You know, it's if you're talking about return to the, in the labor market as, like, the right way to evaluate a college education, you know, if you're trying to transpose this down to K-12, I would say something like being able to enroll in college and then not be totally lost is right. probably a good – you know, good barometer. By the time you know that, like you're done. Right. You can't go back and be like, okay, well, that was bad. Next year, I'm going to change schools and, and do something else. Like that's it.
0: Well, and with K 12 schools, right, like when experts, not like parents, but like experts decide, okay, I want to evaluate school performance, it would be considered comically naive to just go to some public schools. And, like, write down their graduation rates and then decide that the ones with high graduation rates are the good ones and the ones with low graduation rates are the bad ones, right? I mean, people argue viciously about, like, how you should do the assessment, Mm -hmm. but we all agree that if you do it, like – if you do, a, like, a naive output check, like, yes. oh, everybody graduated from this high school and, like, half of them went to selective colleges. Right. All you're going to be saying is, OK, you found a public school in an affluent suburb right. where the parents were highly educated. Right? <laughs> right. Right. And they have, like, really complicated mathematical models go into these assessments. Right. That, like, you're not going to do on the
1: – Yeah, like – are you going to give kids in private schools t- state tests at all is like a, this, right. is an actual question, like how, and it's not that people think necessarily, I mean, a sort of frustration with in within the school choice movement that I think is going to get bigger is that like parents don't necessarily think that the same things are important that education evaluation experts do. But like, at least at the moment that data exists and you can look at it um, in terms of test scores and progress, which is a much, progress and growth, which are a much more important right. metric to look at. Like I don't, you know, is that even going to exist? I don't know. And if it does, like, how do you weigh that against the school composition? Like, it it definitely is. There is less interest in that side of the equation. It's right. fair to say,
0: right? I mean, because it's it's a belief that you should have like freedom to choose, right? right? I mean, yeah. I mean, there's like and the, like
1: even sometimes what you choose is bad or other people would think it is bad but like you should be able to choose it anyway
0: and that would be part of the case for it right is that like instead of having like arnie duncan and bill gates sitting around (laughs) and being like this is what a good school is right like we have devised like a growth formula based on your demographics and like we can now like put everything into our spreadsheet and like this will tell you that like you may think this school around your corner is good but actually i have proven that it's (laughs) garbage.
1: Shockingly, (laughs) parents do not love to hear that. That That's exactly what happens. It does not go over well.
0: (laughs) Right. So the idea, which I think, you know, it makes some sense when you pull out of wonk land, Mm -hmm. is that like we should let people decide for themselves Mm -hmm. what it is they want from their kid's school. Mm -hmm. But I think the evidence is what they want is not what experts would consider to be the ingredients of high-performing education. Yeah.
1: What we define as a quote-unquote good school is something that is, like, very racially and economically fraught, among other things— there have been studies of what parents look at when they can you know if they're looking at charter schools versus their neighborhood schools for example the like test scores and a through f grades that in states were supposed to be like labeling like this is a good school this is not a good school were often not the most important by a long shot
0: so do you know like what 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 do people want you know it's Just, like it's, nice murals or
1: i mean sometimes like they want to, they want no they want to think well of the teachers they like they they think much more of a school as, like a a thing in the community as opposed to a, a thing of results. I think it's probably that without having read the study and not wanting to make up something about sure. it, like that, that was sort of the overwhelming, like they wanted to feel that it was like friendly and welcoming and treated their kids well. And that the staff and, you know, the people cared. And that was more important to them than the A through F grade that came out based on the state test results. When a lot of people like don't think that standardized tests measure anything worth measuring.
0: Right, 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 right. So, I mean, the, the the risk, I, I guess I would say, like, broadly with this is that you would shift the education system to one, even viewing it relatively optimistically, mm-hmm. right? Like, say nothing terrible happens. We don't just have, like, children falling through the cracks or, mm-hmm. like, out on the streets because their parents forgot to maneuver through some system. But, like, a, I think a reasonably optimistic case is just still that we get a system that Relative to where we are now, like de-emphasizes the idea of making sure that particularly kids from low socioeconomic status backgrounds mm-hmm. are like actually moving up the reading and writing ladder.
1: Yes, I think that is a, actually an extraordinarily optimistic assessment, but right. it is it's sort of and it's sort of letting go of this idea that is obviously flawed and not carried out well at the moment, but that like everybody gets a public education of like right. vaguely the same qual you know it, it lets go of that sort of unifying thing i do think though like if you're talking about something as large as the scale that the trump plan is talking about there absolutely are going to be kids who are who fall through the cracks um because what you're doing is you're you're draining out some kids from the public school system and the money at both state and local and federal money it right. sounds like that comes with them but at the same time there are like 13 million kids who are disadvantaged but not below the poverty line. There are the kids whose behavior records, whose academic records make them like less attractive prospects for private schools. It's sort of like the the charter versus traditional school argument of the traditional schools are left with the the Uh hard to educate kids. But like objectively, that is 100 percent for sure going to happen.
0: Right. As a feature. Right. Yeah. So so, so it's not like a
1: secret like stealth side effect that we argue about whether or not it exists like that. Guarantee That is guaranteed. Right. So
0: it, I guess it's actually worth dwelling on this for a while, yeah. right? So you're talking about right now you might have like a neighborhood public school that has some kids who are below the poverty line, a lot of kids who are only modestly above the poverty line, right. some middle class kids. They're in a building that is approximately full. Mm-hmm. Um, the teachers are teaching.
1: This is, this is a real like.
0: Like normal normal-sized classes. Right. Right. And so under the Trump plan of the very poorest kids, mm-hmm. the ones who don't have serious behavioral problems
1: mm-hmm.
0: will leave. Right. So now the school is stuck with a certain amount of fixed infrastructure costs. Right. That it can't you can scale down your spending some because you don't need as much pencil. Right. You might lay off some teachers. right? Um, but
1: especially at the elementary level, like it's got to be a big drop to go from hiring, you know, three teachers for grade to two teachers right. for grade. Like that has to be a significant number of kids. And you're off.
0: And your basic like we need to heat the school in the winter. <laughs> right. We need a principal. We need to cut the grass. Right. I mean, right. your costs don't really fall. Right. So the, the burden of the cost cutting mm-hmm. really has to fall on like. The instructional services. Right. Because keeping the school running is fixed. And the kids that you're left with, while it'll be a less poor population, Mm -hmm. many of them are still fairly disadvantaged. Right. And you are left with the behavioral cases and probably the disabilities.
1: Yeah, I mean the you the issue and like if you're only talking about, you know, there are a lot of poor kids in America, but if you're right. if you're if you're narrowing down the definition of poor from like disadvantaged to truly poor, it right. does change a little bit the makeup. Um but yeah, I mean basically the the issue is that the kids who are left behind are going to be the ones who can't get into private schools and in education, like like in medicine, you know, that the outliers are really the ones where you need right. the most resources. Like these are the kids, kids who have either who have learning disabilities or behavior or are still le- learning English are really far behind. I mean, there's many reasons, um, you know, have track records of, of suspensions and other punishments that are disproportionately applied based on race. Like th- there are many reasons why this would be a – why kids would not really be able to get out with a voucher. But the ones, the overwhelming majority, like the overwhelming unifying theme, is that they're kids who, for one reason or another, are going to require more time, energy, uh, know-how, resources than you know the 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 poor kid making four O, who's a great candidate, and every private school is fighting to them. And
0: and I, and I would also worry that the like second stage political consequences of this are going to be. Disastrous.
1: Yeah, I mean, right? you've, you've, I have not really thought this as far out, but you have. That, so it's I'm, I'm like, interested in your that it's on
0: like us. you're sort of like. I mean, it depends what kind of community you're talking about, right? Mm-hmm. But you are taking mm-hmm. like middle class people who are not qualifying for these vouchers, yes. and who, after taxes and property ta- you know, mm-hmm. after basic living expenses, don't have the money to send mm-hmm. their kids to a fancy private school, and who are now stuck in public schools that have had their funding stripped yes. out. You're now talking about a really raw deal in which those families are either going to want to withdraw into like these like fortress suburbs mm-hmm. where exclusionary zoning means there are no poor kids, where you don't have Title I money, but you also yeah. don't care, um, and you're okay, or else they're going to want their city governments to go further toward dismantling the public school system but cutting property taxes steeply so that now you can afford to go right because it's like even even right now it's it's very challenging to convince middle-class parents that they want to also be part of public schools that have poor children in them Mm -hmm. and this like Voucherizing it, it it really like – it amps up the pressure on that system, right? On mm-hmm. the people who do have both political voice mm-hmm. and the opportunity to exit, you're like, well, now, OK, the poor kids who behave OK have vouchers and are going to parochial schools. So, you know, I'm paying taxes so that my kids – can be stuck in a school with not just like with poor children, but with of the poor children, the ones who are so badly behaved that the private schools won't take them. Mm-hmm. And like that does not seem like at all sustainable to me.
1: Yeah. And it also, I mean, it is a formula for resentment in the way that the public schools are in, in some places when you're talking about a large elderly population, but like are not by and large right. at the moment. But like, again, if you, look at, if you look at Pell Grants, this absolutely exists. Like, oh, The idea is pervasive. And among, like, otherwise liberal people, that it's the middle class parents who save money for college who get screwed. Right. Like, absolutely. And that would 100 percent translate down to the K-12 level as well.
0: Right. You would say, okay, we've got just, like, rich people going to private school. We have the poorest kids getting these vouchers. And, like, what am I doing here? Right?
1: Yeah. I do think regardless of whether or not this is an intended consequence, it would absolutely
0: drain Support
1: for the the public school system as a whole, and then there's also the sort of like programs for the poor, poor programs idea of, you know how how long does an eleven thousand dollar voucher really really get maintained?
0: Well, right, and like yeah. I mean, how would that scale, right? Yeah. I mean, if you start an eleven thousand dollar voucher, and then twenty years from now, yeah. it's still an eleven thousand dollar voucher.
1: To be clear, I don't think we're going to get eleven thousand dollar vouchers, but no. it's an interesting thought experiment. Right,
0: but I mean, th- this is why I think the like. We talked earlier about, like, the evangelical community's, mm-hmm. like, comprehensive vision, mm-hmm. even though it's not, like, in this Trump proposal, is, I think, relevant to understanding it, right? Mm-hmm. That, like, some of the political impetus for yes. vouch- a lot of the political impetus from vouchers is coming from people who don't really want to, like, find a stable— workable public school right. system. I
1: think there's a huge disconnect on, on vouchers specifically between the the, politi- the the proposals the politicians are making who I think like genuinely believe it will help right. poor kids. Like I think Paul Ryan does believe that like poor black kids in Milwaukee are better off with a voucher than they are in the Milwaukee right. public school systems and the Paul Ryan constituents who want like vouchers for themselves and their kids. Right. And there's only so long that you can say that you've done it without sort of getting the pushback from the people who really deeply uh, – are motivated by it. There, there is support like within the Black community for vouchers in some parts, but like the people who are really like true believers in vouchers are actually not the people who are included in plans like this at all.
0: Right, right. I mean, exactly. I mean, it's it's not Paul Ryan's constituents who get the Milwaukee vouchers. Right, right. The, the politicians who Betsy DeVos gives yeah, God, money to, talked about to Betsy DeVos. are not. Well, <laughs> Trump's education secretary <laughs> Betsy DeVos,
1: very pro-voucher. That's like really all you need to know about she it. She
0: supports this. Stuff. Yeah. <laughs> With a lot of money, yes. and like has really put. I mean, she she's a big villain in uh you know a, a lot of uh, public education community. Um, but but like she she's like she's super rich and she's like put a lot of her money into this this is why i'm taking this seriously i guess i should say she has a a profound personal commitment to this voucher agenda donald trump uh, sometimes puts people in cabinet jobs for no reason at all like ben carson (laughs) um but this this like seems like a real thing with a with a real person behind
1: it yeah i mean betsy devos has a shocking lack of can like in any kind of interfacing with the public school system at any point in any way, which, like, I do not think whether or not you send your kids to public school is necessarily the determining factor of whether or not you are good at education policy. But that aside, like, she's not an insane pick for education secretary. Like, right. She is a person who is known in the education community. Like, she is certainly more extreme than some of the other people he was considering who have, like, run state school systems, even if they are generally pro-voucher. But, like... She's not someone who it's like, yeah, it's not like picking Ben Carson at HUD. Like it's education people are like, oh, huh, OK.
0: That's what I'm saying. Like, it's it's an ideologically a little bit of an outlier. Yeah. I mean there's a lot of different things the education department could do. Yes. So like one thing you could pick is like Arnie Duncan, someone who had run a public school system. Yeah. And then the message you are sending is we want to run public school systems better. yes In theory, you could pick someone from the higher education world. Right. I don't think that's happened in a long time. but. Um,
1: there actually no a lot a surprising number have been more from the higher education world because honestly like having expertise in public schools having if you go back right. through the like twelve education secretaries there have been is it, like it was not a pretty it was not a very high priority for right. most most presidents of both parties. Uh, well,
0: I mean back, but I mean the the, the so you got people ones, like Lamar
1: Alexander who ran right. the University of Tennessee for example,
0: right? right. Um, but but Obama and Bush both pick people from from uh, from K-12. At any rate, uh, Betsy DeVos has not been a state education commissioner, has not been a public school chancellor. But she's not even
1: like she was not a behind the scenes policy person like Margaret Spellings was. Like, right. But yeah. she is
0: very involved in the education issue. Yes. But what she is involved in is the idea that we should not be trying to run public schools better, but that we should be um, giving kids money so they can attend. Private schools.
1: Right. And she, she has been pro-charter schools as well, but in a way that, like, charter school advocates are very alarmed by because it is, like, charter schools without limits. Right. Um, it is charter schools without any kind of accountability.
0: Right. So she is a she's, – she's not Ben Carson. She's not, like, yeah. who? But it's, like, a – a fairly extreme ideological vision, rather than a practical, like manager of the existing system. She's a right. she's a funder and sort of a, a visionary and operative in this, like conservative, like we need to remake what right what the what public education system does.
1: And I, I mean, I also think it's worth it was worth just quickly saying that, like. Well, this is not an uncommon view on the right. This is not something that has been in power at the federal level for a long time. Like I really was not familiar with her and it's because should we give school vouchers has like – that has been a very back burner education question uh, for a very long time. Ever since George W. Bush tried to sort of get it into No Child Left Behind, it didn't work. So you're you're going back to 2001 um, to the last time that like vouchers – were talked about in a serious way as like, a big issue of education policy.
0: Right. So what Bill Clinton was president and, like, Republic, some Republicans said, instead of doing whatever Bill Clinton's doing, there should be vouchers. Right. And then George W. Bush won, and he was, like, had the voucher people in his coalition. Right. But he wanted to get a big bipartisan bill done. Right. So he dropped the vouchers. Right. Said, And the we're, vouchers
1: were never, like, the ultimate goal right. of, of his policy vision. And
0: there. he said, we're going to focus on standards and accountability. Right. And, and then we argued about that for a long time. Obama was actually pretty similar.
1: Yeah, we argued about standards and accountability for 15 years. Last year they were like, "Eh, maybe not so much on the accountability." And like, here we are. Right. That's, so it, that's the history of education policy. So, so there's a, a
0: big shift, yes, right? This is has, a big deal. Has has overlaid not just from Obama, but from George W. Bush.
1: And even H.W. I mean, really, we're going pretty far back at the presidential level. You have to go back to Reagan before right. you find somebody who this this policy vision really follows from.
0: Yeah, so it's a in sort of a I don't know. There's there's a lot of stuff where Donald Trump is like an unconventional Republican in maybe a more moderate direction or just seems weird or there's a lot of things where he seems continuous mm-hmm. with Republicans. But this is actually an issue in which he has positioned himself into a sort of controversial but very ideologically orthodox, yes. like back to the origins of new yes. right education thinking.
1: Yes. I mean Mitt Romney did not – have this weird the states are also going to do it because I will make them part of his plan right. but like voucherizing title I was his education policy right. as well. This is like bog standard.
0: Right. But but it's but it's big bog standard
1: on steroids, right. which is yeah, I guess a good metaphor.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, it, but I mean it's it's unusual. I mean, it's not how we we don't normally think of Donald Trump as like bringing the Republican Party back to its pure conservative ideological vision. Right. But that's really what he's done here. Yeah. So, you know, one thing that you would think you know with a, with like a a standard president who unveils a like sort of fairly drastic um overhaul of a major portion of american public policy you wouldn't say well how could he profit from this personally <laughs> and yet but with donald trump i do feel like you have to ask with everything like what's what's the angle here because among other things he owns a sprawling business empire which he I think he promised on Twitter recently that he was totally separating himself from
1: At a press conference with his children. So like three guesses what his plan to totally separate himself from it is.
0: Well, explain it.
1: Trump has said throughout the campaign that rather than put his businesses into a blind trust and because I didn't actually really know the meanings of the word blind trust until recently, I'm just going to like state exactly what it is, which is basically like you sell all of your investments. You put that money into, like, something that you don't know what it is. It's blind. It's blind. And someone else who is not, like, your child is in charge of overseeing your financial interests in the way they would, like, any other client. So if you had, like, Obama's, I think, is the easiest way to understand this. He sold all of his stock. He put it, I believe, into an index fund, index fund and treasury bonds. Right. So, like, two things that whatever he did, it would affect his portfolio in some way, but he did not know exactly how. Ah, uh, Trump has decided his version of this will be putting his children in charge of his businesses, right. So, which is not that. That is not a version of that. That is another thing,
0: yeah. and and, I mean, to to be clear, if you want to try to give Trump some credit, Which I don't really think you should do. It's if you think about the conflict of interest from the other perspective, right? If you were a business partner of Donald Trump's Mm -hmm. and you heard he was going to take on a side gig as president of the United (laughs) States, you might reasonably be worried that this was going to mean that like he was going to be taking his eye off the ball in terms of management of the enterprise. Yes, that's fair. And so something he might say to reassure you is, you know, Don Jr., Eric, and Ivanka have been very involved in this Business over the years, I'm going to take myself out of the loop, so it's not like they're like tr- arguing with Rens Priebus about when they can get a meeting with me. Yeah, they are going to have full decision making authority. It, they're going to do a good job, right? So, it,
1: it, and if your instinct is to put your business interests first, is his like that actually makes total sense? Like, right. It is also to also be fair to him. It is harder to sell his business empire than yes. it is for for Obama to be like sell my stocks and it, buy other stuff. It is,
0: but I mean, it's just he's taking a solution to the problem of co-investors and creditors and things like that in his businesses. And he's selling it as a solution to the American people. But it's like the voters concern would not be that Donald Trump is too distracted. Right. Right. It's
1: actually really revelatory that like that is apparently the frame in which he's thinking about this.
0: It's that he will be um, self-dealing. Yes. Right.
1: Especially given that his kids are apparently going to be extremely involved in his administration, like, it's not really a blind trust anyway because, like, presumably he will still understand how his business works and, and what is going on with it. But, like, if the people running it are the people who are, like, popping in and out of the Oval Office, like, that is that is not a
0: meaningful subject. Right. I mean, Ivanka Trump is interviewing cabinet secretaries jared probably can't get a, a government salary but can he get a security clearance right. so he can be an informal
1: they're moving to dc which interestingly like the the rumor and i probably didn't actually have any reason to back this up but like what everybody sort of thought was that ivanka is clearly the child he like trusts the most was going to be the one in charge of the business and not really do anything politically right. instead she's moving to dc
0: so, she's like, doing meetings with al gore yeah.
1: Literally any role she has in the business, if he does not say at that press conference, like, Ivanka will be solely focused on my administration, like, that is already a massive conflict of interest.
0: Right. And, I mean, to be obvious about it, um, if one of the big things your business does is license the name Trump, there's no – there's no sense in which anything could possibly be blind, right? I mean, if a a headline comes up and it's like, okay. uh, So-and-so real estate company has made an agreement to build, like, the Trump Tower uh, Baku, then you know that they paid the Trump Organization money for it, right? Right.
1: And if he were not—if you did not do that, I mean, it would not be—it would still be difficult given the familial relationships. But there might actually be, like, a veneer of plausible deniability on this stuff. Like, if your name is literally on your building— there's really no way around it,
0: and and so we've already started to see some. I've seen so many things. Say. There have
1: been so many shenanigans. Um, the hotel in DC, which just opened, the old Post Office Pavilion, uh, Trump now Trump International Hotel, is really sort of the heart of them, and one sort of the easiest to understand because it sort of demonstrates all of the ways in which this could be a problem. So on the one hand, the hotel is like aggressively promoting itself to diplomats as like. And as one of them said, like, why wouldn't I stay there when I could go to the president and say, I stayed at your hotel last night, sir. It was very nice, Um, which was then I think, a Politico or a Washington Post story. So there's that. There is the, like, side angle of this of, like, there are governments. The kingdom of Bahrain is holding its 45th anniversary ceremony of something there. Bahrain is a country that has good reason to want to be in the good graces of the United States, um, since we are still denying them funding to crack down on internal dissidents. So there there are like real ways that that, that can be used to sort of buy influence in. Then there is the, the sort of second concern, which is that Trump will use his office to make existing problems go away for his businesses or open up new business opportunities. And hey, he is appointing the head of the General Services Administration, which is the government agency that oversees the lease on the old post office pavilion right. hotel
0: but also like he has a hotel in Las Vegas that has an outstanding labor dispute I
1: think that one has actually been settled. I think it was settled right before Election Day. I just discovered that yesterday. Oh, well, but there but there will be more like this. Yes, Like there was a labor dispute over whether one of his, his hotel in Las Vegas could unionize. It went to the NLRB. I believe it went to the full NLRB, but it may have just been a regional one, in which case it means it's still, right. it's still in the pipeline. Regardless, like he will be appointing people who make decisions on individual cases that could very well end up being consequential to his business. You actually could Im- include the Supreme Court in that
0: if you wanted to as well. Right. And he... In the real estate business, you you get a lot of loans. Like right. that's how you do things. Um, and the banks are also regulated a lot. Yes. So Deutsche Bank is his biggest creditor. They were also in the midst of negotiating a fine with the Justice Department for breaking some kind of law.
1: It is a large fine. It is like a $5 billion fine. But a-
0: after the election, they broke off talks because they are anticipating a better deal from the next president. And I think the president could anticipate a better deal on his next loan.
1: You have uh, the Bank of China is the biggest individual leaseholder within Trump Tower in New York. Uh, there are just all kinds. And these are the ones we know about. I think is, it is worth like saying over and over and over again. Like the, this is in a world where we have not seen his tax returns. We do not know where all of his debts are. Just the ones we know about are pretty horrifying. And there is, there is this total possibility that there are things much worse than this that he has not yet made us aware of
0: right because we don't really know i mean some things we know trump owns because he's named them after himself or because he like shows up there and is like hey i own this amazing golf course right but that doesn't like obviously he owns trump tower that's not like a secret um but we don't really know what assets these companies hold right Right. Because they're not so I mean, we don't know where all
1: his income comes from. Like there are many things we don't know. here.
0: Right. So because he's filed a financial disclosure form, as Mm -hmm. you do. Um, And the way these things work is you're supposed to write down what stuff you own Mm -hmm. and an estimate of what it's worth. And the way normal people do it. So like Joe Biden says, like, okay, I have whatever Vanguard fund. I have these treasury bonds. Um, My wife has some pension thing from. Yeah, whatever we,
1: we own stock and we own a little stock in like these right. companies right? but
0: what trump's disclosure just is is it's this big list of the names of llc's that he owns and you can sort of based on their name make inferences about what they are like one is called trump marks cutter
1: mm-hmm.
0: probably that is a holding company that licenses the name donald trump mm-hmm. to properties in cutter um it's written down as having a low value. There aren't big Trump properties in Qatar. It's probably just a company they set up for a deal that didn't happen yet. Yeah. You can call anything anything. Uh, there's an algorithmic hedge fund that's named Jane Street Capital. Um, right. It's it's not located on Jane Street. <laughs> I think I think it was once. But like you, you can name your company whatever you want, right. right? Like it has nothing to do with what it is. So like there could be a company that owns uh, – I don't know what. You know, it could own a coal mine and it could be called Trump Airlines. Like there's right. no – and we don't um, – the financial disclosure forms don't pierce that veil to say, well, what does the LLC own?
1: Right. Right. It's just it's just a list and it's a list where it's – it's easy to make wrong inferences too. If, um, there's this list of like companies where Trump is doing business and one of them is Israel. And apparently that – what this was actually based on was the existence of two LLCs that were like – Trump Vodka Israel or Trump Drinks Israel and Trump Trump Energy Drinks Israel, I believe. One mm-hmm. of them was Trump Vodka, which is out of business, but was, in fact, fun fact, phenomenally successful in Israel and remains, but is no longer being manufactured. Right. And so, like, can you actually say he's doing business in that country in a way that, like, would influence foreign policy? Eh. Yeah. You and, know, and, and, and but it could also very easily go the reverse. Like, he could have a company doing business in Israel that's registered as, like, Trump
0: Drinks Antarctica. Like, you just don't know. And I would say it's, it's become clear to me that, like, part of the play here, since Trump is not going to resolve this, and since congressional Republicans who could try to make him have decided they're not going to, that I think they're going to be happy about how confusing it is, that probably there will be 100 allegations leveled at him. And 98 of them will be true mm-hmm. and two of them will be on the scale of you put Israel on the map, but really Trump drinks Israel right. went defunct years ago. And it'll just create a cloud of like one thing Trump likes to talk about a lot is the idea that the media is out to get him mm-hmm. so that like if you are a Trump loyalist, you should be in the mindset that like the lying unfair press is smearing Donald Trump. And right. you're going to see some stories that get this wrong yeah. because we're left to sort of guess. Yeah,
1: it's it's like it's like that thing about blind men the elephant. Right. That's really the situation we're in here.
0: Right. And so it's going to be if you are inclined to be skeptical of Trump, you're going to say we don't really know what's going on. Mm-hmm. Like this is a disaster. The but Taiwan
1: thing was a great example of that actually, the phone call the phone call to Taiwan that, like, right. may have upended U.S.-China policy. There was a narrative that night that uh, the Trump hotels were trying to build a hotel in Taiwan. It turns out that, like, build a hotel in Taiwan was maybe a significant overstatement of, of what they actually were doing, which was drumming up business for the hotels. But, like, who's to say they weren't trying? You know, it's it's just there's so much uncertainty that it can support either the most charitable, based on what we know, interpretation or, like, the most conspiratorial And so, of course, the Trump team will say, oh, it's this totally innocent thing of like we were recruiting guests from Taiwan. But like who really knows?
0: Um, And and, and the traditional view has been that like you want to avoid even the appearance of impropriety. So you would say obviously we didn't upend American foreign policy toward China to get a hotel contract because we don't. Operate a hotel business at all,
1: right? (laughs) Trump actually, the appearance of impropriety helps him. Like as long as foreign foreign countries believe that by helping Trump's business, they can help themselves, even if that's not true, even if he is like conducting himself otherwise perfectly ethically and not allowing this to influence him, the ambiguity really benefits him. Because that's more – more diplomats will stay at his hotel, more, you know, more governments that maybe will grease the rails for a Trump-branded project and so
0: forth. And I think we'll see a version of the that makes me smart defense. Yes, exactly. Like we saw with the taxes, right? That it's like, well, look, if people want to show up and do favors for my business unasked as a way to curry favor – that that just shows i'm I'm getting one over on right. on on the, on the public and but Trump,
1: unlike say the Clinton Foundation where the worst that could happen is like malaria prevention got some extra money. like the worst that could happen is like Trump is going to make a lot of money off of this ambiguity
0: right. but I mean, I, I think that this is like a fascinating thing where like the fact that the Clintons the Clintons did two things that wound up hurting them. Mm-hmm. I think one is that the stated goals of their foundation, Uh, were humanitarian in nature. Mm -hmm. So anything that ever happened at the Clinton Foundation that wasn't humanitarian, like they employed Sidney Blumenthal.
1: Right. Right. Which was
0: clearly like a favor to a family friend. It was
1: humanitarian toward Sidney Blumenthal. Right. But it
0: was a a favor to a family friend. So that counts as a strike against them. Whereas a family friend on the Trump Organization payroll, that's his business. Um, Then the other thing is that they said— that it wasn't an influence-peddling operation. So anytime they did a meeting with a donor, it's a scandal. But Trump is— Very cheeky. He says he's greedy and he's trying to rip people off and that he's a smart businessman. So if people are putting money directly in his pocket to try to bribe him, that just goes to show how awesome he is. And like I could write a column about like some of the things Trump does don't help sick people in Africa. But like, of course. (laughs) Right, right. Um, and, And that is like, I mean, I don't know. If I was Hillary Clinton, this is the part where I would want to shoot myself. Um, but it's like by not having any standards.
1: No, it's totally true. It's like the the, the two sort of differences are like, A, the actual – because, I, I mean, you can't see a version of the well if, if, you know, if they're trying to buy influence and Trump isn't selling it. Like, what does it matter? Like, it matters that Trump – A, that Trump is still getting rich um, hugely, I would right. say. And B, like, he's also the president now. Right. Like, we should not be sitting here debating like, oh, like – if Trump has an opportunity to, like, be greedy for himself and also make an okay deal for the United States of America, like, is that fine? Like, no, that's not fine.
0: Right. I mean, and ultimately, I mean, this is where the transition phase is weird because he's not president. So he's not really, really doing anything. Right. And also, things are, like, okay in America. So it's like, what are you going to blame Trump for? I mean, it's weird because he campaigned talking about how horrible everything is. Yeah. But, like, actually, things are okay. Yeah. Um, The problem for him— I mean, the problem for the country is that, like, even small mistakes and ambiguities can create bad outcomes. Yes. Right? I yeah. mean, we we will have to see, right? If four years into this, if the economy keeps adding 190,000 jobs per month, mm-hmm. we continue to not have a war with China. You know, yeah. then, yeah. you know, I, I think, like, good government types are going to be, like, furiously typing away. Yes. <laughs> and most people won't care. Yes. Um, But, I mean, you traditionally don't try to run the government of a major country as a sort of shakedown operation um, because actual bad things can happen if you're not, like, minding the store. Um, Particularly
1: in in foreign policy. I feel like in foreign policy is where these conflicts are really the worst and also the hardest to understand is, like, if you are not a foreign policy expert, like – why our allies being – our quote-unquote allies being able to, like, also buy a little bit of influence with us is a bad idea is not immediately apparent. And then you sort of, like, dig down into the details of these relationships in a way that the average person does not. And it becomes very obvious right, or, but where it, the conflicts are.
0: Right. But so it's like, you know, nobody cares. But, like, about, nobody
1: will still – it doesn't mean nobody will – people will care even if it goes wrong, to be
0: honest. Well, no. But, I mean, with foreign policy, it's like nobody cares about yeah. foreign policy until something terrible yes. happens. Yes. And then suddenly you care. A lot. A lot. Right? I mean, that's, like, the – Nexus of this where I don't think the like media take should get like too smart about it. Mm-hmm. Right? Like I think the Obama administration and most recent administrations have spent a fair amount of time trying to like be friendly with India and Pakistan, but in a way that doesn't give either side reason to believe we would back them in a war, right. so as to discourage them from having a giant war in which hundreds of millions of people die. Um, and Trump, meanwhile, is Trump is like pulling the
1: president of or the call, calling the leaders of both countries and saying, "You're great. I'll do anything to help you." So, like, that's great. That's, right. that's going well.
0: And it's like you would not expect – I do not expect voters to care about that um, and probably nothing terrible will happen. But like small increases in the probability that like huge disastrous wars will break out is like really unwise and like not worth pocketing a little extra cash in my opinion.
1: I also will stick a flag in the sand for like even if voters don't care about some things, they are still important. So
0: <laughs> yes,
1: that that flag is down.
0: Boom. Okay, with that, great episode. Uh, thanks, everyone, for listening. Um, if you enjoy this uh, this podcast, well, I hope you enjoy it if you're listening. And, uh, you, if should, you made
1: it this far. Yes,
0: and you should tell others to listen as well. Subscribe on iTunes, share it on the Facebook, uh, tweet about us, email us, uh, call your mom, you know, wh- whatever it is you want to do. Uh, my thanks to Libby for joining me. Um, no thanks at all to Ezra and Sarah, who are, who are useless. Uh, thanks to Panoply, uh, to our producer, Afim Shapiro, and we will see you next week.